Listen up. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the podcast participants and not to any participant's employer, organization, committee, or other group or individual. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. You know, for fun. So lighten up and enjoy. Hello, Stomping Jen. Hi, Sawtooth. How you doing? It's very bright in here tonight. Yeah, I have the lights on. Yeah. So our guest can see us. Oh. Yeah. I thought it was so you could see me. No, for a while I was recording in the dark because I fancied myself somebody who needs the darkness to be my true artistic self. But I've emerged from that cocoon. Oh, yeah? Yes, I can now conduct conversations in the light. Oh, in the light. Yes. Oh, okay. <clears throat> Which explains all of the light. Yeah, and I think cool. it's helpful for our guest to be able to see us. Speaking of our guest, um, we're going to be talking to Mike Maderos today. Um, and uh, Mike is the founder and chief potter of Poesia Pottery. He makes handmade ceramics for the garden, for the home, uh, he also teaches mindfulness through the practice of pottery. Yeah. We've talked about mindfulness before yeah. on the podcast, so we'll talk a little bit about that. And uh, in addition to being a potter, uh, Mike is also a poet and a photographer. Poet. Yeah, so we're going to talk about a lot of stuff here. All right, and you let's know get I, to it. Yeah, you know I love talking to artists, so yeah. we're going to have fun here. All right, awesome. are you ready? Mm-hmm. Are you sure? Yeah. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Creamy, delicious ideas without the creepy truck. Hey, Mike. Hello. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I threw a bunch of clay today, so that always makes everything better, right? Oh, nice. Is that is that what you say uh, when you are constructing something out of uh, for pottery's purposes? You threw clay. Is that the terminology? The clay. That sounds like the terminology to me. Uh, yep. Sit at the wheel and start making the weird stuff happen. You know, some, when you're on the wheel is when you're throwing, and when you're hand building, you're doing other things and. I don't know what other terms there might be, but those are two of them. <laughs> advances I get, I guess. Now, where that's interesting to me. Like, instead of calling it like spinning clay or something like that, where do you think that phraseology comes from? Like throwing it. Do you at some point do you like toss a blob of clay down onto the wheel? Like, well, you do to start off. I don't know where the phraseology came from. I don't know where your origin is. I could make something up real yeah. quick. Yeah. <laughs> But because I, I like to do that way too much. But yeah, you kind of you grab your uh, chunk of clay and you fling it on the wheel. Like you have to really fling it on the wheel pretty solid to get that thing to stick on there when you're spinning. Elsewise, you might have a disaster where the clay goes elsewhere from the wheel, where you, which you don't want generally, unless you're doing performance art. <laughs> yeah, huh? <laughs> uh, I think I think we've discovered it, uh, Jen. Yeah. We know where the term, yeah, we know where the term throwing um, clay came from. 
Yeah, chuck that thing on the wheel, wheel and start making your thing. Yeah, um, Mike. So how did you how did you become interested in pottery? Um, in my intro, we talked about how you are the founder and chief potter at Poesia Pottage, po- uh, Poetry, which is your company. Pottery. Uh, pottery, yeah. I said poetry. Poetry sorry. and pottery. They're very, very close. Lots am, of P's there. I'm going to get mixed yeah, up. Lots of uh, how did how did you find your way into the uh, craft of uh, pottery? Yeah. So this current iteration of my being inter- interested in clay came around 2017 when I really started making pieces. But the first time was when I was just a little kid, and I don't know if either of you went to Sturbridge Village out in. Uh, Sturbridge, Massachusetts, but they have this historic pottery there and they have one of the only terracotta potteries from the 1800s still in existence. And um, I'd go there and they would have this big pile of gray clay that they would dig right there. They no longer dig it there. So it's the red clay, which no longer comes from New England because the gray clay, as I learned later, would turn into that terracotta red because the oxidation of the, the clay in the fire. So I'd love to take that clay home. And it was just magic. You know, it's like, it was like, ooh, take this thing from the dirt and get to squish it around. And um, that was the genesis of it. But it wasn't until many, many years later that I started to actually work with it. So 2017 till now is the is the timeline of Poesia Pottery. And, how- and Poesia is, um, so I'm Portuguese uh, in uh, heritage. I'm from New Bedford, which is a very big Portuguese population in, in Massachusetts. And so poesy means poetry. And I just finished an MFA in poetry. And I've been very big into poetry for many years. I worked over at Emily Dickinson's house, had a key to her house where I wrote many poems in a room when I was supposed to be working. Um, you know, so <laughs> it all ties together for me. Yeah. Uh, how How did you... How, how did you reawaken this um, fascination with pottery in 2017 and come back to it? Well, hell's bells. You want to go sad moments? Yeah, absolutely. Let's do this. Let's get dark real quick. So clay is like the happy joy. But, you know, so uh, I, I started having trouble writing. And that's always been my lifeblood, right? Like I've I've writing came to me like, you know, sunshine comes on a summer day without clouds. Right. And all of a sudden it wasn't rocking anymore. And so my gigs both required writing and it was scary. Um, and I didn't know why it was happening. And for a creative person, I didn't want to have no outlet at the moment. I mean, I would also have liked to, um, retain my pecuniary monetary <laughs> gigs. Yeah. But at the same time, I also needed that creative outlet because no matter what I did with my gigs, it was all about having that creativity to go with it. You know? So all of a sudden I was like drawn, I'd been following this one potter, right? This guy, Guy Wolf, who makes flower pots. And my family history is very garden oriented. My grandfather had a greenhouse range. I grew up around all these plants and stuff. And I've always liked that stuff. And around 2013, I first saw Guy Wolf throw a flower pot. And it was just like this flashback to that moment at Surbridge Village of, of seeing some the potter making those pieces out of terracotta. And I was curious from like 2013 to 17. But when the words start happening, um, I kind of got drawn into that the opportunity to like make something out of play. And I don't know why it was so such a draw, but it was there. And 
there was this cool like so there's a place Northampton Pottery in Northampton, which makes sense for the name. <laughs> and I started there with this cat Frank Edge who owned it at the time. And within two classes, he sold it to another person, Chris O'Neill, who currently owns it still. And she turned out to be the best person I could have stumbled upon in the history of the world, right? She was just chill and cool, and we just had a blast like talking. And um and she allowed me to bring terracotta clay into the studio, which in most studios, it's mostly stoneware. So the, the different varieties of clay, um, you know, there's all different reasons why they're different clays. But terracotta melts earlier than stoneware. Most, like, typical studios fire to a, a thing called cone six because cones are a measurement of clay melting points and firing points to where they center, um, to where they become a ceramic. And terracotta, if it were to try to go to cone six, it'd be like, you know what? I don't think I can make it. I'm going to give up before I get up this hill <laughs> and just melt into a puddle. And I love terracotta, right? That's like typical garden pottery is terracotta, old school stuff like that. And she let me bring it into the studio. I had my little sequestered area. And here was me with my little busted writing brain making these... Uh, these flower pots and it was just the greatest thing that could possibly have happened and from there you know the next year i jumped into i i, I, I was able to get into this uh, mfa program for poetry at umass amherst um where i'm still having the struggles with the words and uh, you know that's a long story and we can get to that later but i was also working with the clay at umass studios during that time so i had 24 7 access to my wheel one pawn which i could throw that clay right yeah. And, yeah. And so that, you know, the words and the poems were woven together for me and they've always have been um, that creative output between those two disparate, um, you know, genres worked well for me for some reason. And uh, did, I like did going shifting a little in terms yeah. of your artistic output, did that quiet the anxiety you were experiencing around not being able to write? Like, did it did it fill temporarily whatever that hole was that you were feeling? You know, I don't think anything could have healed that weirdness of not like having your old um, your old skill level there. But when I got on that wheel, man, it was like um, it was good times. It was like, I don't know, Tom Brady being able to throw like a football to Julian Edelman or Gronk in the end zone. You know, it was like every time that wheel started to happen, I was like, all right, things are okay again for a little bit. Mm. So, yes, um, to a degree, yes. Yeah. Um, what is interesting to me, you must have had to learn a lot because I just learned something in, in hearing you talk. Like, I had no idea clay could melt. Like, I just thought, like, I thought it was like dirt and it was not capable. You know what I mean? I had no idea. So you had to learn about all of the different types of clay and the, um, the processes and techniques involved in throwing clay that, that must've been, I guess I'm imagining it must've been both daunting and exhilarating, I guess, maybe as a new learner. Yes, the sadness of everyone who had to hear me talk about it (laughs) (laughs) Um, as I got scintillated by that clay. Um, Yeah, there was so much to learn. And and but you know how it is when you get into something that you really dig. Um, Literally with clay dig. Oh, worst pun ever. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But as soon as I was in it, 
I knew I'd found another of the things I loved. Like with words, I've always loved it. With photography, my dad was a photographer. So that was almost a, you know, almost a continuation of my father passed away when I was in college. So like that photography almost was like a continuation of that connection. So that was a love. Guitars have always been a love as badly as I play them. And as soon as I stepped my foot on that foot pedal that started that wheel spinning, I knew I was home again at, a, at another one of those creative homes. And so it was just a dive into the, the things that I love. And, you know, everybody in the clay world has their own interests, you know, like any creative interest, like whether it's music or whatever, you're going to find your genre. Right. And like terracotta was kind of my genre, whatever that means. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and it's like, a, it's a low fire. It's a fragile sort of clay like you know a lot of people gravitate to the the porcelain because it's pure this is a clay that has never been moved from uh its original place where it was like um you know disintegrated from the rock that makes it you know what i mean but terracotta has been moved around it's been knocked around a bit and i kind of dig that i kind of uh I kind of feel the terracotta, you know what I mean? It's gone through its things. It's it's faced a world of, of uh, challenge and all of a sudden it, it ends up, you know, different. The, the thing that makes terracotta terracotta is that it has been moved from where it has disintegrated from rock. And it's been, all these uh, additions have been put into it, whether it's iron, all these impurities, they call them, that make them melt at a lower level. And I kind of like that about it. It's like, it's kind of, it's kind of been beat up and it's kind of been like, yo, here I am, whatever the hell I am. So the, so the <laughs> Make of me what you will. <laughs> yeah. The terra, the terracotta you work with, um, they add stuff to it. Um, or, or can you dig it directly out of the ground and yeah. work with it? Pretty much everything in Massachusetts is, uh, it's a low fire clay because it has been moved by glacial activity, by whatever river activity, mostly glaciers, you know, um, the things that made our little mountains around the valley and things like that are the same things that moved the terracotta around. And I like that. I like, you know, I find different terracottas around the valley and some work great. Some are beautiful on the wheel. Some are like, I don't really want to be on the wheel. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> so I was going to ask you about that. So you actually go out and you can dig the clay out of the ground yourself and take it to your studio and work with it. I think that's one of the most wonderful things about working with clay is that you can go out there if you find it. So let's go like for an instance, like uh, some of my poetry friends during the MFA during COVID, uh, we wanted to see each other. We missed each other. And, you know, Zoom can only do so much. It's a wonderful tool just like this, you know, but there's a there's a sadness when you're used to being around people and being able to have those informal conversations. Yeah. So we'd meet out in the woods sometimes and we met out in these woods in East Hampton one time and we're walking along the path on a rainy day and I'm squishing through this dirt and I'm like, that's clay. And so one of the ways you can tell clay is you can pick up a little bit of it and if you can squish it into a ring, then generally it's it's a clay that you can work if you can make it a ring around your finger <laughs> and you can tell the plasticity the the workableness of throwing it by the way it holds together doing that so you know that was a fun moment you know it's like both seeing those people you really enjoy spending time with but also finding your tool for creativity so those things we'd go out in different places i'd drag along friends and be like let's go on little hikes and I've heard there's rumors of there's clay out here. You know, there's, <laughs> there's clay out in them there hills. <laughs> there's clay in them hills. There's clay in them valleys. It's a, 
<laughs> do you have this is going to be a stupid question but do you like I have a that. do you have a nose for clay in the sense that like if you're walking through an area like you've been out there enough now like you get a sense that okay this might be an area that has a, a clay deposit in it or something like do you just have a sense for it now i have a nose for willing to be wrong <laughs> so i have a nose for willing to wander around looking at stuff and being entertained by things and once in a while you find those things that you want and i think that i think that's a crucial thing if you're trying to find something specific you know like a clay it's like i'm so fine being not finding the things that i want to find that when i do find the things that i've been looking for it's it's just an extra bonus so yeah. i go all around you know, hopefully with, with my good crew and like with my friends and, but you know, I'm an only child, so I'm good on my own too. It's, um. it's so weird as we're talking, like I have this memory of being a child and I, I grew up in kind of a estuarial area out on the East coast. And there was a, like a river that ran down into a marsh. And I remember going up the river, like with a bunch of friends, we were actually like hunting for muskrats and like somehow like I remember some kid yelling, Hey, there's clay over here. And we all like ran over to the river bank and we're just like fucking around and digging out like hunks of clay and like shaping it and throwing it at each other. It was like this red, like this really rich red clay, like in this memory just popped up. This was out in Danvers, uh, Massachusetts. Okay. Out by Salem, kind of. Um, That's a, an amazing spot for finding clay. Do you know that? I had no idea. I just had this memory pop into my head as we were That's talking. Amazing. So the Danvers and Salem area was one of the major terracotta um, clay production areas during like 1700s and 1800s. No kidding. Beautiful stuff came out of there. I have a couple of pots from that era from like um, this place called Page Pottery. So... Once again, Massachusetts yeah. is mostly terracotta. So that's so dope yeah. that you found it because that's the red clay that they had out there. I found this one piece. So right before COVID, I was out in Salem with some uh, MFA friends and we were just strolling around and we stopped in this antique shop. And actually, I can. Oh, yeah, we're not on video. So it's OK. You can show it. We'll describe we'll it. We'll appreciate it. I will describe it. Hold on. Yeah. Let me get it. It's right behind me. Like literally. Okay, Michael is going up to a shelf and he's pulling down this large kind of reddish brown pot. Okay. So this pot was in an antique shop, Okay. Right? And I could not stop hanging out with it. Like it just had this for me in the pots. It's like I'm like something like this doesn't look like much to most people, right? It has it's a lot like, of character to it as you are holding it up and showing it to us. Yeah. So um, on the interior, it's glazed with something called Albany Slip, um, which was a kind of clay that was dug around Albany, New York for m hundreds of years. It, it ran out in the 1980s. But you know those brownware pots? You'll see like Crocs and things like that. That Actually. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's a very rich. I'm surrounded by this shit. Yeah. Um, it's a very rich, deep so This brown. kind of pot is very typical of that brownware stoneware. Um but if they add lead to it, it'll melt at this terracotta level. So this was made in Salem. I asked the guy at the shop. I was like, why am I like, what's up with this pot? He's like, so that pot was in a Salem household for 
hundreds of years. Yeah. They finally, the family finally, the last of the family passed away and they got rid of stuff. And there were two of these pots there, but this was the one that just had met. I still have the receipt right here from uh, <laughs> Old Nam Kiog Antiques at One Hawthorne Boulevard in Salem, Mass. Um, and I went back like three times that day. We were wandering around. I was like, I should not buy anything else in my life. Right. <laughs> I couldn't get away from this pot. And I finally like, it was like one of our last getaways before COVID, which was really special. So to have this pot, was like, it's a big reminder of that time with people, but it's also like a big reminder of that era of, of pottery making in Massachusetts, where Salem was one of the centers of that world before the stonewares, the higher firing stuff that was more durable, more um, usable because it vitrifies, you know, like terracotta, things will soak into it. It'll leave flavors, whatever, you know what I mean? It's yeah. Solid. It's amazing, and, like seeing you hold that up, it's amazing to me that that thing is hundreds of years old. Like I've never had like a terracotta pot that I bought like for the garden or something like last more than a couple seasons. And that thing is like hundreds of years old. I mean, it might be like 1800. It might be. Yeah. I'm not sure exactly the era, um, but I do know it was in that family for quite a while. Yeah. Which like, and I just pick it. And so there's some, there's like an absorbency with certain terracotta. Like you pick them up. And like, I could feel <laughs> because it absorbs still, because it's, it's not vitrified, which is like a, you get certain ceramics to a certain temperature, they form almost a glass, like, you know, so that present prevents bacteria from getting in it, makes them like your typical mug, your bowl, you know what I mean? Yeah. This terracotta would absorb crap and you probably don't want that for eating with, but I hold it and it almost like my fingertips almost like absorb into this one. And I just... It's ridiculous. I walk around with this thing sometimes because it's just like it gives me that soul of making. And when I'm getting ready to make a big piece or something, I need these pieces around me. Um, and a person made that, right? That wasn't made by a machine, a human so, being. Yeah, you can see inside yeah. of it the the finger marks of the person. Like as soon as I like saw this on a shelf, I could see on the outside the finger marks. And then I looked inside and I saw the Albany slip, the brown on the inside that they've coated it with to prevent to allow that that vitrification to allow that glassy surface on the inside, yeah. which unfortunately is coated with lead. So I will never use it to store anything with <laughs> <Right>. it. <laughs> because it could still leach out. Yeah. Um, but you can see the finger marks and you can see the, that, and you can just start, like if you're a potter dork like me, you just start imagining who was this cat who was making this, who, how, what kind of environment was he working in? What kind like, did he process the clay? Who was doing this? Where did they get that clay? Just like you on that river. That's where they yeah. got the clay. You know what I mean? They would dig yeah. that clay out. They would bring it back. I got to work at an apprenticeship at this weird place in Pennsylvania, right? Called um, the, um, oh my God, how am I blanking on my name? It's too late at the night. My uh, Moravian Pottery and Tile Works um, out in uh, Doylestown, Pennsylvania. So I got to apprentice there um, in 2018. And they get all their local clay from this river called, uh, uh, not river, uh, Lake, Lake Toey. And so they dig that clay out. They put a big pile by the, the place and we process like 3000 pounds of it every week in this crazy old thing. So a pug mill is what you run clay through to kind of process it, get it prepared for working. And that thing had been in that place since the early 1900s. It looked like this gigantic metal dragon. And I love that thing. Yeah. So we create that. We work the clay, we put it in bags, we put it down in this very dungeon area because this place looks like a concrete castle. He built, it was during the early era of using concrete construction 
And he did that because it's so dangerous to fire um, in in wooden structures, brick structures, and things like that. There were so many fires. He lost one building already through fire. Wow. So he's got this concrete building that's protected from fire. And down in that little <laughs> dungeon, we put the clay and we'd prepare it and make tiles. So that was like almost like going back to this, like you know, pottery yeah. era. You know, I like that stuff. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, when you were when you and thank you for sharing that with us. Um, I love seeing that that pot from the 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 area I grew up in. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I got I got like the chills as the chills? as Mike was no, you <laughs> talking to us. Past, you have to handle it because yeah. it's magic handling that pot. Yeah. Um, you talked about a bunch of the you know the places that have inspired you in terms of you know pottery. Like when you were putting together. Um, um, Poesia pottery, your own studio. What what elements of those things did you carry into your own pottery studio, if any? Like, or did you just start like with a clean slate and do your own thing and let your intuition guide you, sort of? Well, I do always let my intuition guide me, but I I don't think, as a disaster of a human as I am, I don't think I ever have a clean slate. <laughs> it's always a messy slate, and it's always you know it's packed with my present moments, but also almost everything I do is influenced by the things I've come across, the people, the places, the the instances of history that I've been able to experience somehow, you know, that I stumble across through books or by hearing about it from another person. So with Poesia, I mean, I, you know, I've never been to Portugal. I, I don't, I barely, I speak it poorly, but my neighborhood was very Portuguese. My, my entire heritage is Portuguese. And I love a lot of the traditions that were passed along to me. You know what I mean? And there's this, um, this sort of Portuguese terracotta pottery, mostly in the area of Bissolias on the mainland. I'm, my family's island Portuguese Azores, you know, so it's different, but it's a black smoked pottery. And I saw that one time and I've always been drawn to that for some reason, um, whether it's Portuguese or um, or Native American black smoked pottery. Um, I I I I just love it. You know, so some people are drawn to the glazed pottery, the glazes, the the complexities of working with a porcelain or the, you know. For me, I like setting shit on fire <laughs> and seeing that carbon smoke into something and turn it colors to, to you know a variety of colors and seeing what we can do with that to make it pretty you know yeah pretty rocking you know what i mean so i love that i love the bare clay and there's a there's a couple of potters that i know that just they like working with plain clay unglazed clay and i don't know i think there's a, a similarity in the way we approach it there's just there's a power in that in seeing that clay work, something that comes right from the ground and you can make something out of it, make something useful, make something uh, inspirational, make something that expresses something that's inside of you. And like, you know, I'm making a bunch of sculptures for different gardens right now. And it's a, it's a lot of personal stuff that I'm trying to express through these pieces. Um, and they're terracotta, they're plain clay. And, you know, yeah, I think that's um, yeah, and a lot in uh, takes with me when creating poesia, um, yeah. and that and, and the poetry ties into it too. 
Yeah, and I'm, <laughs> d- I'm definitely going to ask you about your poetry. Um, I did. Sure. I, I wanted, and you talked about this a little bit. I did notice when I was looking at a lot of your um, materials, your website, your Instagram, how much uh, plants play a role in uh, the products you make, whether, you know, whether they're like, you just mentioned, like they're sculpture for a garden or a pot for a plant. Um, and does that, does your love of plants kind of connect back to your grandfather? You had talked about that a little bit with us earlier. Um, it, is there, is there another connection to plants in your life that, that drives you to, to focus a lot of your pottery on plants? I was talking with some people about multiple people about this recently because it hit me one day. Um, I started wondering, am I trying to resurrect that past by making these flower pots? So my grandfather had this greenhouse range in the middle of New Bedford. New Bedford is, you know, I don't know um, who will be listening to this, but uh, if it's Western Mass folks, New Bedford's like Holyoke with ocean. You know what I mean? It's, like <laughs> yeah. it's essentially that. It's a, it's a, you know, the typical New England and post-industrial city. So amidst this uh, city is this oasis that I had that I was lucky enough to have growing up. My grandfather's greenhouse range, you know, it was a little bit of nature amidst a lot of busy streets, you know, and I, and I think that was extremely influential in the way I developed. And the connections between not just that greenhouse, but the people he knew, you know, one of the places I'm working with in New Bedford right now is the Alan Haskell Public Gardens, which is a trustees of reservation property right now. And that place, I actually worked for that place when I was an undergrad at UMass uh, during summertime to make bank for uh, (laughs) the following year, you know. Um, And this was a very eccentric horticulturalist. He was one of the best known plants people in, in, the New England region and the Northeast region. Um, you know, he had <laughs> this camel named Lester. He had all these fancy birds, oh but he God. would, yeah, it was so true. <laughs> um, but he also knew his plants backwards and forth. We'd go do like the Newport mansions, all the big fancy stuff because he knew how to not only to uh, work with the plants in a way that was just beyond most people's understanding of it, but he knew how to play the game. You know what I mean? To play the game with those, <laughs> those rich cats. <laughs> yeah. Normally otherwise wouldn't have been hanging out in new Bedford, but like Queens would send their like garden workers to like his place in the middle of new Bedford. So my grandfather's place was down the road and Alan Haskell got his start there when he was like a 14 year old, like just buying plants. So that's what, so that's what I mean by the connections, like all these little places throughout New Bedford and different places provided this, you know, like Boston has its like emerald necklace of gardens and things like, yeah. for me, yeah. it was those weird connections that took me out of kind of the grittiness and allowed me to play with leaves and flowers. <laughs> and it left an impression on me. That's never changed. It's like, you know, my one tattoo on my arm is a willow tree for a reason. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, what an amazing, I mean, that's an amazing resource in a city, like to have a greenhouse like that. Like, again, it's interesting that this conversation is um, triggering so many memories in me. Like, I remember my father taking me to this greenhouse in Danvers when I was a child on Route 114 called Kane's Greenhouse. I don't know if it's still there, but it was like a massive greenhouse complex. And I like, I remember... I remember the feeling of walking into that space, right? And like the smell of the humidity and the plants and like just, it just felt so special. 
I don't know. Did you ever go to greenhouses, Jen, when you were a kid? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. I don't know. Like, it, yeah, like there's something in, you know, to have that resource like available in an industrial city must yeah. have been a, how, like, how did your grandfather decide I'm going to open a greenhouse here in New well, Bedford? Well, he works for, um, so he worked for Revere Copper and Brass. That was his main gig. Yeah. And I've heard stories like how, how much he did there. And I've seen like, whenever I see myself getting a little weak and flabby, uh, I look at like pictures of him from my era. I'm like, damn, I need to, I need to start stoking a furnace at Revere Copper and Brass and that will keep me in shape. <laughs> Cause he's just like rip. And so he, I can't imagine his work hours because, well, it helped having like six children, I guess, because they did a lot of stuff too around there, but he would work at Revere Copper and Brass. My grandmother would work the greenhouse. He would come home. And, um, and I think it was just, you know, I don't, I really don't know what made him start it in the first place. Maybe it was just uh, his like way to get away from the heat and the fire. And cause I can't think of something more opposite. Right. right? Do you know, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. So, you know, that, you know, going out of that dark space and coming into something. Yeah. That what could be more light ridden than a greenhouse with just its glass house as opposed to that, that dank yeah. <laughs> world. Yeah. So maybe that was it, you know? Um, yeah. It's and it was interesting. Like, and my father wanted to purchase it when my grandfather passed away and just, Weird family stuff happened, and you know every everything's yeah. weird. You is know, it? Is it? Get, is it weird? Is it still? Is it still there? Is it's, it gone. So, it's, it's gone. gone. It's developed. So I yeah. went down there. Uh, you know, it, this was a long time ago that it was developed into housing. Um, it was sold out of the family, and then it was turned into like a condo de- or a house, like a subdivision kind of mm-hmm. thing, which grosses me out every day. But there's like one tree left there from that time that I found. And so I'll gather leaves from there sometimes and put them on some of my pots. Oh, wow. And usually I'll send them to family as like a, you know, it's like, hey, there's still a little remnant. Oh, God damn. What an amazing tribute. And like, what an amazing way to keep a piece of that. Like, it's so weird. You know, it's so weird how things change. Yeah. Um, and I think it might be. You know, I don't know if this is true, but like part of me, am I like, am I making these flower pots to try to bring that place back, to try to preserve a bit of that place, that heritage of my family? I don't know. It's an interesting. Might be total bullshit, but yeah. it might be real. <laughs> I mean, it's a good. I mean, it's a good question to ask. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so because yeah. um, we do weird things to the past, you know. We we do. Um, Michael, when did you when did you start kind of like feeling like a potter? When did you feel comfortable? calling yourself a potter <laughs> uh, yeah like when when did that apprenticeship really helped yeah uh, between 18 that apprentice so that was a year after i started doing that apprenticeship it was one of the most magical experiences i've ever had in my life you know just being able to spend those it was only 10 weeks it was a summertime down in uh pennsylvania and i just the people there were just so welcoming and I learned so much from them. And, um, and they've become some of my best friends in the world. Like, I love going down to see them. They're just so cool, you know? And um, that was a big turning point because I learned so many techniques, but I think, you know, going to UMass. So I got to work with, um, 
you know, I love my poetry teachers. I've learned so much from them, but I also learned similarly from the people in the UMass pottery studio. I probably spent more time in the pottery studio. I got to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) It was because I was still having trouble with words. I was still having trouble getting back into that ability to work in that conceptual area. So being in the pottery studio was like a life raft in the middle of a a creative, you know, storm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, someone like, so Cynthia Constantino was one of my professors and she makes these amazingly weird sculptures. I love her stuff. Yes. She's so badass, right? I love her. So I had her tell me all the time, like, why why do you want to make flower pots? Aren't you bored out of your mind? (laughs) And I'm like, no, Cynthia. I love them. Um, But talking with her pushed my boundaries to like understand more of the things I could do with clay. And at the same time, um, there's Evelyn Snyder who runs kaleidoscope pottery in the Valley. So to get her like practical knowledge, all these years of like running a studio and creating these beautiful works on a more um, utilitarian level, you know, plates and bowls and things like that with these beautiful design leaf designs um, to have those two work with me. And then my classmates, I just like being in the clay studio with those people, just bashing around ideas was one of the best opportunities I've had. And you don't get a lot of those opportunities when you're coming back to school later in life. You know, you don't, I didn't expect to get that opportunity and to have that happen at that time was one of the greatest gifts I could have possibly been given. That's amazing. Um, Yeah. As as you've as you've gone on and thrown more clay, do you have a favorite um, kind of pot to make or form to make? Has 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 one emerged out of the the pack of possible Yo, I forms? Could, I could throw a flower pot every minute of the day for a hundred years, <laughs> and um, and you know I just love. So here, like, if we go into the mindful stuff. Um, I lost a lot of strength when I was trying to work. I finally got through a lot of that creative block and I figured out what was going on, but to do so, I had to do a lot of internal work. And a lot of that involves sitting my ass on a couch and stress eating too many chicken wings from the hangar. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I'm getting my strength back this year, finally after that. And to be able to throw a big old flower pot, you know, and I consider a big flower pot like 20 pounds of clay or more to feel the comfort and the skill of being able to take that clay, whack it on the wheel and start to make with it, make a piece out of it. Um, that feels real cool. But at the same time, <laughs> to go back to the terracotta world. So, you know, Neko candy. Yeah. Yeah. Neko wafers, right? Yeah. Yep. Neko that- candy. Okay. Yeah. So, so back in the day, they're wonder- <laughs> um, they, uh, the baked beans, the candy baked beans. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I hated those, but yeah. I'm sorry. So I, I'm bringing up a painful subject for you. <laughs> um, <laughs> but instead of the little boxes that they come in now, they would, somebody literally threw, I don't know how many thousands of these little baby sized pots uh, to put the little candy baked beans in. Oh. And they're hand thrown. I can see the hand marks on them. And I've seen others from other companies that are uh, mold pressed and I have no joy with those. Um, so I see these little guys and they're the most wonderful things in the whole world. They're only so small and they put little candies and I have maybe like eight or nine of them. And uh, to make tiny things like that is similarly awesome. Um, That's amazing. 
it would bore the shit out of most people. But for me, I don't know. I'm pretty simple. <laughs> is there, um, is there, well, talk to us a little bit more about how, uh, throwing clay connects to mindfulness for you. How do, what's the connection there? Well, I mean, maybe I'm going on a reach, but, uh, it is kind of important to me. Um, so all through, I, so, you know, just jump to, you know, the ending of this movie, I found out in 2021, you know, I reached out to people who were smarter than I, and because I was having inklings of, um, what might've been going on during that time, I was diagnosed with ADHD and PTSD from New Bedford, you know, from, you know, like New Bedford, like Holyoke, like Lowell, like all these cities, they're rough and tumble, man. And, um, and you learn coping mechanisms when people shoot at you, when people come at you with, <laughs> with the violence, you know, and mine was definitely fight or flight, freeze, all those things. Um, I, but I didn't have the language for it for many years. And um, so, but I, I got the diagnosis because I was starting to figure out a way out of it. And I wanted to make sure I wasn't bullshitting myself about that. You know what I mean? I found a way to start slowing this pattern. And I think it would always crop up on me when, um, when big stresses were happening. So like, uh, so for the mindfulness thing, uh, when I stopped being able to write, I was trying to balance two really kind of, kind of busy jobs. I was working at Hampshire college full time as their senior writer. And then I was at the Emily Dickinson museum as their PR guy. And the bosses uh, at Emily were very straightforward, very analytical. And I'm a weirdo, man. I've always been able to do my writing and my photography as a creative. Um, And I was able to create some really cool stuff at that time, but it wasn't necessarily appreciated by the, the kind of Excel spreadsheet kind of mentality. (laughs) (laughs) And I wanted so badly to please that mentality. Too much Catholic school makes me want to please anyone who comes off as a nun. Um, (laughs) To my detriment. (laughs) So I think that really pushed me those already existing patterns into a speed that made it go away, made my abilities go away because I started thinking too much. Um, so when I got on the wheel, things would slow down a bit and it would ease some of that, that weirdness. It didn't make me start being able to write well again for a while, but, you know, eventually I came to the conclusion of, um, you know, there was something about being in that space. And I've talked to a lot of people, you know, a lot of people actually who have ADHD and things like that, who have some like um, issues going on. You get on that wheel and something about having to center that clay, taking this lump of clay and just sitting there and learning how to make that clay not go in a hundred directions at once. Something ties into a brain that's trying to go a hundred places at once. Right. And then you bring it into this thing that can be worked. And I don't know when it, and there were some days where, you know, like the clay wheel, you just, you're trying to learn how to send a clay and it's just, infuriating and it's the same way with the brain sometimes but there's but many of the days you'd get that thing centered and the process of it would allow for like a piece that was lacking at that moment and i think that was the big draw that unconsciously i was leaning towards and that has led to a lot of deeper questioning on my part 
that is leading to me like trying to create these courses with mindfulness in play to see if I can be of any help to others. While I try to understand this more and more, what I'm doing. <laughs> have, have you taught? Have you taught any of those courses yet? And do you offer them to people? So I'm. This past year, I've been getting certified in uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction through Brown University. So they cool. offer um, the main training for it. So I've just got certified in foundations course. So I can teach like hour and a half courses in mindfulness now. Oh, congrats. Through, yeah. Yeah. It's really exciting. And um, so I'm developing the course right now and hopefully we'll start teaching in the fall. I've been teaching. I don't want to start teaching on a more like official level through things until I really know what I'm doing with it. So this summer has been kind of like, I've been, you know, I've been using my friends as like crash test dummies of the course <laughs> and myself, you know? Yeah. Cause I'm like, look, I'm not going to offer this like officially through clay studios yet. Let's figure this out. Cause I want the dialogue more than anything else. I just want to keep being part of the dialogue and I'm just, cause it was so scary not knowing what was going on. You know, yeah. whenever we're any of us go through those things where we don't understand something that's hindering us, you know, it's terrifying. So like now that I kind of have an understanding of what was happening, I just want to keep learning because it's, it's only, I feel like I'm only at the beginning. I feel like I'm on the personal level of understanding it, but I don't know like big science words of what, what I'm doing when I'm so, so that's why I wanted to go through Brown and like the mindfulness based stress reduction. It's just one initial uh, jump into that dialogue, I think. And so teaching mindfulness and clay to my friends who are interested in similar things, I think that's a chance to have more of that dialogue and be like, what works for this? What seems to be working? Is this helpful to anyone, to whether it's ADHD, people, uh, PTSD, whatever it is, is what this is doing useful or or do I have to really hone this? Or is this something that is not useful? Is this something that's only a personal thing that's of use? So I think that's... For the next couple of months, I just want to keep doing that. I just want to keep it nice and chill with people who are just, we're just willing to experiment with it and see if, because I see the clay as kind of like um, a delivery method of the notion of a mindfulness of getting into a space of learning how to, uh, to work with the mind in whatever way is useful to get to a place of, yeah, for me, it's a place of quiet. When, you know, when the ADHD and the PTSD, you know, that's that protect oneself at all costs thing is kicking in. I'm in a lot of places at once. I'm trying to and I'm not seeing what's in front of me. And I think when I'm on the wheel, all of a sudden I'm in front. I'm, I'm seeing what's in front of me. I'm seeing this clay that's spinning upon a wheel. And the only way you're going to get that thing to work for you is to be aware of it. And I don't know why it works so well, but it yeah. does for me. I think it has yeah. something to do with that spinning motion, like you know how, yeah. and I mean how I mean you don't have to turn far in like pop culture or other places to to know that like the, you know the spinning motion is something that calms people and relaxes them, and I'm like fascinated by this. I don't know if it's a metaphorical or even like a literal connection to, um, the plasticity of the mind, right when we're doing stuff like therapy and mindfulness and trying to retrain those neuronal connections. And then there's the, like the plasticity of the clay, you're shaping the clay too, right? As you're, as you're trying to focus on the mind and focus, 
you know, focused and retrain the mind. It's, it's amazing to me. That's like a wonderful point. There's some like, there's some like connection there. And I don't, I don't know how to explain it, but. <laughs> Do you know the great pottery throwdown, the, the TV show on HBO? No. It's super popular right now. Like, yeah. It's gotten a lot of people into pottery. And one of the hosts, he's well known for crying. Uh, I'm blanking on his name right now. How, how, you know, you get me past 8 p.m. and all of a sudden all my brain cells are <laughs> But, <laughs> but um, he was, he did, gave this talk where he was talking about, he's like, about clay and mindfulness. It was really fun to hear him talking about. It. And he's like, and I think it's partly because of the clay itself. It's, um, you know, it's this primordial thing that brings us back to our like early evolutionary era. It's something that grounds us in our own selves. And I don't know if that's true, <laughs> but I do know that clay is uh, for me and for many people that I know it's, it, it is, it's that spin that yeah. that's, you know, this extremely quick spin that somehow slows you into a place where you can uh, focus on the world that's in front of you. I yeah. And you just brought up something I was going to also ask you about, which is this um, craft of pot making of pottery is thousands of years old. Like it's as old as human civilization, right? Like this ability to create vessels and put things in them, whether it's, you know, some water or some food or plants to grow. Like, what does it feel like to you to be part of this ancient like tradition? And do you ever, do you ever kind of stop for a moment and think about that? Yeah, it's super badass. I say this all <laughs> the time, like to different people, you're, you're going to be part of the crew that carries us through the apocalypse. Yeah. When everything breaks down, we're still going to be making some like pretty bowls into which to put our uh, watery soup. Yeah, we're going to need you, Mike. <laughs> so. I can spin that bowl. I can spin the bowl of the apocalypse. Yeah. Uh, but do I mean, like more seriously, though, do you ever think about that? Like you're part of this like ancient tradition of, of this of craft that has helped carry humanity like across the millennia? I think every freaking time I throw that stuff on the wheel yeah. or every time I pick it up, it's just it's it's it, it's trippy it's um you know i have friends who are working at like major scientific developments you know cutting edge stuff you know like nasa things and nih uh, research and here i am playing with dirt and rocks and melting them in fire and me specifically it's like i have this in like garbage can outside that I set a lot of my pots on fire. So literally I'm just tossing a bunch of sticks in a can and sticking clay in it. Whereas my friends are figuring out computer technology for the generations that will destroy us all. And meanwhile, I got, I got my can with sticks in it and the clay that's going to be there for a while after the electricity goes away. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I, lo I love that. Um, my, um, <laughs> Uh, pottery and throwing clay seems to me like it's very physical work. Like, how do you, how, how do you take care of your body so you can do this work? Like, are you, are you conscious of the fact that you have to, you know, you have to eat well, sleep well, all that stuff? Like, how does that factor into your work as a craftsman? Yeah. Especially the last couple of years when I let myself completely go when I was trying to do that brain stuff. Yeah. Like when I got the diagnosis from um, the ADHD center in Amherst, the happy center. And when I asked them what this thing, I'm, so I'm doing this thing, I'm doing this meditative thing. And it seems to be working for me. Am I bullshitting myself? That's what I asked them. And they're like, no, you're not. 
if it doesn't work for you, then there are medications. There are things we can think about, but keep doing it. Soon as I heard that, I was like the little greyhound that had been waiting for the gate to open back at the racetrack in Raynham back in the day. You know, I was out and well, except instead of running, like I said, I sat my ass on a couch and stared at a wall till I could figure out how to slow the down because I was starting to understand this. And for months and months, I just spent most of my days when I was finishing my thesis, I'd work and I would stare at a wall to like try to figure out how to slow things down. And when that happened, when I was doing that, and this was a time when we didn't have access to the clay too, because, you know, the studios were closed during COVID. I gained so much weight and I lost so much physical strength that when I got back to doing it, I couldn't do it. Like I physically did not have the strength to move a pot and, and it was scary. And, you know, they've been, you know, as someone who's gone through like some of these cycles of like the, the speed taking away the abilities I've gone through like the weight changes and stuff like that. So lost, but I hadn't been throwing clay. And so, yes, um, going forward as i in this past year i've been able to build back a lot of that strength and i've been starting to throw the things that i can throw so you know it's both a matter of uh mental technique learning how to do it right because it is technique you know because you don't want to just use physical strength on this you want to use you want to use that wheel or whatever clay implement that is around you to get that thing to work easily so you don't have to use as too much physical strength but at the same time if you don't have that base strength and flexibility you're in trouble and you'll get hurt and i have a lot of friends who've done this for years who do get hurt so that's what i'm going to try to do you know i'm i'm building back yeah to being strong and flexible and it nice. feel like it's felt so nice this summer to feel that strength and flexibility and technique coming back like i don't know if there, I mean, I get a lot of joys in this world. There are certain, you know, clay isn't the greatest joy in the whole world. But when I start doing that, it when I start seeing that platform and I know that I can control it because because I put in the time on it and I put in the time on my body and stuff, it's, it's a magic moment. And so I know how much I still have to build in order to protect myself. Because if I'm going to do this for 50 years, you know, and it's like, I'm no baby. I've been around. <laughs> <laughs> I've been a few spins in this world. So if I got a few years to play with this, I'm going to do my best to protect myself and to, to dedicate myself to, I don't know. It's not just for the clay. It's nice to have a body that works. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Play the dope, you know, it's like, I like to play with the clay and um, yeah, it's so, funny. Yeah. I've heard, yep. the, I've heard the same thing from um, tattoo artists, believe it or not, because they're, you know, they're hunched over a lot and they're, yeah. You know, like just physical. so focused, and it's like really physical. Um, Hell yeah, yeah. Another uh, thing I wanted to ask you. This is this might be the the the, uh, the nuttiest question I ask. Um, <laughs> have you have you ever made an urn like for human remains, and would you? I've make not one? yet. Yeah. Um, but I uh, I've talked with some people who eventually might want me to and it's that's a you know that's a heavy like so yeah as dark as i get um and i do um i enjoyed like you know the halloween world um it's heavy for me sometimes and i feel like it plays upon the early loss of my father sometimes so like sometimes i avoid that shit like the plague um but at the same time I also consider it like, you know, I don't know if you've ever been to Edward Gorey's house, the museum down no. on Cape. No. Yeah, but he has like this urn there that they sent out on the water, this wooden one. And it's really cool. And I'm like, you know, 
as tribute to things, um, I would do my very best to create a piece that fit that situation. Yeah. Thanks for answering that. I was just curious, like as somebody oh, yeah, who, yeah, yeah, yeah. as somebody who makes, makes pottery, I thought somebody yeah, might've yeah. asked you a or something. Thing. Yeah. Um, all right, I want to transition a little into talking about your work as, as a poet, if you're okay doing that. <laughs> yeah. um, how do you, how do you, you've talked a little bit about this, but I think more specifically, like, and if you can answer it more specifically, like, how do you see poetry and pottery overlapping, like, as crafts or for you personally? Like, how do they, do they blend together? Do they overlap in some way? Or are they completely distinct for you? I think all my creativity overlaps in some way. Um, that's always been the way I worked. And maybe that's a bit of the ADHD, like everything, everywhere, all at once, you know, like the movie right now. Um, uh, the more, you know, everything for the most part during like the high speed times in my head, like I lived for deadline and like, I lived for those inspirational moments. Like I didn't know where it would come from, but all of like a poem, all of a sudden it's just there. And I have to write it at that moment and it has to come out and same with a pot, you know, I'd just be spinning and all of a sudden I'd feel the shape form and I'd have to run with it. And whether it's a photograph, you know, same thing. Um, and the more that I learned to slow down, the more, I can take those inspirational moments and sit with them a little more and edit them a little more. But at the same time, I never want to lose that inspirational vibe, you know, like that, that I did not make this. I mean, this is like, this is a quote from Stephen King that I've always loved. He's like, you know, the best pieces I've ever done have a feeling of being like an archeological dig. Like I'm excavating this piece by piece, like it's there already. And then it comes up and there it is. And like, when it feels like I'm creating, then that's usually my worst stuff. Yeah. And that's, um, and I feel like a very similar way. Like I've never been able to like sit and like intellectually create anything. It's always been like, you know, I see it, it, it happens, it's there. And then I can run with it after that. But it always is that sense of the best stuff is that excavation stuff, whether it's poetry or pots. And, uh, Bob, and I, don't know, I like that. Yeah. I like that feeling. Bob Dylan uh, has said a similar thing like that. Some of his greatest songs, he doesn't even really remember writing. He said he was just acting as a conduit for something and it was just channeling through him. Like, and he doesn't really have good um, recollections of writing the words down. Like it's, I don't know. I, I, I don't know if he's messing with people or not, but like, I, told, I don't think he was. Yeah. Especially like he talked about that stuff pre like motorcycle accident, pre like John Wesley Harding, you know, you read those lyrics and it's very much different than yeah. after that. And I think that, that I don't know what it is. It's just, but it's a special feeling, whatever that creation is, um, whatever. <laughs> I don't know what kind of lightning riding on um, when we're doing it, but it's, like, and I'm not in any way comparing the work I do to Bob Dylan's, yeah. but it's, like, it's fun for all of us whenever we get that feeling, right? It's like, yeah, I mean, I run through. Yeah, I mean, I will often, and I'm kind of known for sometimes, um, you know, like freestyling crazy songs, right? Yeah. And, it, and it's um, like on the podcast or, you know, with, with, with my little guitar. And like sometimes it, it is like that. You, 
it just comes to you. And I, like, I don't know where the next word come comes from. Like it just, yeah. it's there and it is flowing. It's flowing through you. And I was doing this the other night when I was playing games with my friends and like, they said, where is that from? Where did you hear that? I said, I don't know. I just made it up. They're like, you made that up? What did you make up? It's just some like nasty, dirty, like song, like <laughs> I made up about something. And I was like freestyling this entire song. And I like did like three verses just out of nowhere. Yeah. And they were like, how did you do that? And I was like, I don't know. It yeah. came through me. I don't know. I just said the words. <laughs> like, I don't know. So I totally get what you're saying, though. It's like sometimes you just like... Sometimes you're just like tuning into this frequency or something and it's coming to you. Um, what kind of stuff do you tend to write about, uh, Mike? Like, do you, are there certain things, is it anything and everything or you focus on certain things? Yeah, it's really not the thing. It's just, it's whatever happens to trip out of that moment, you know? And I'm like, just, I try to stay open to it all the time. And I have a bad habit of it happening in the car where I just, before like I had my iPhone where I could actually like record it in notes or uh, record voice record, I would just like have a pen and paper with me in the car and I'd write and drive. So I probably will not get my license renewed now. If anybody <laughs> <hears> that. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you have favorite poets that you, you, you follow or who are inspirational to you? Absolutely. You know, I'll, I mean, you know, like I said, having a key to Emily Dickinson's house was crucial um, because, you know, to go back to like that story I was telling when my father died, I live, I was living across the street from Emily Dickinson's house in an apartment there my last year of college. And every night I'd just go sit on uh, the back porch there and just read and be this, like, uh, you know, this mournful little poem creature who feels too much. <laughs> you know? I love that. I, I know <laughs> where, you, I know where you poem. lived, by the way, I lived in a house adjacent to that across from, Emily Dickinson's house. I lived on Dickinson Street for a couple of years. <laughs> so you know the ugly green apartment that yes. now is gray after the person set off fireworks. After the fire, yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, that's super cool. Yeah. yeah um, it was a it was, you know, that was what cemented my tie with Dickinson. And to be able to go in there and work there was just the ultimate privilege to be in that space. How how did that I mean that um she was somebody who tended towards the dark. Oh God, yeah. Yeah. How did that? How did that feel? <laughs> um, heavy at times, yeah. you know. I mean, but I can get pretty heavy at times. But I'm, I mean, I'm pretty. I do like the the goofy and the light, but it's like I'll go dark. I can play dark. Um, and so I think she could too. She could go like you read her letters, and she could just be very playful, very friendly, very lively. But just the depth of it, it, it was just human emotion. I think. I think in any creative endeavor, that's the crucial thing is the ability to not block those, to have those emotions being right there at call. Like, you know, a painter needs their paints at like, at their, by their hand. Yeah. And I, for me, it's like, unfortunately, sometimes the emotions and all their aspects are there to be used. Yeah. And I think I try to channel them through useful things do you uh and i'm sorry to ask you this like do you have anything on hand that you might be able to read for us that you be comfortable reading or i don't know if uh, you have a, yeah i don't know if you have anything i, I bitch i might not in your it's okay if you don't yeah i mean um, you're around let's see <laughs> um, i don't want to do that yet because that's new um no but you want me to grab something from like somebody else yeah sure yeah let's see i'll, I'll spin 
I've been reading a lot of Denise Levertov lately. Um, let's see. I, mean, I have this one, like I moved to this place, like fortunately some friends hooked me up with a place when I had to move. And um, I had this one little piece of furniture that's like a spinning bookshelf. It's really awesome. Oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, there's Charles Olson. Let's see. Uh, I enjoyed this. You know, this isn't one of my favorite authors, uh, Dezo Tandori, but I've been reading this one quite a bit too. And there've been some good ones in here. Um, and it's, um, translation from Hungarian. Huh? Um, you're Hungarian, aren't you? I am. Jen is Hungarian. Well, this is the time of the poeming, isn't it? Yeah. That's so interesting. That's awesome. Let's see if I can find a good one, right? The universe, Jen. Universe, see, we're riding on it right now. Yep, mm-hmm. we're on the poem lightning. I don't like this poem. Let's do this. <laughs> Let's try this one. Saint Severin dies out of context. Okay, so birds very frequently appear in my dreams. Tonight, the hummingbird-sized sparrows have discovered the narrow slits in the shutter, and suddenly there are four of them here, just asking to be caught. So I draw near and one by one lift into the room those four, where among flower pots and rows of books they disappear. By now only the outside sill was left. I caught two more sparrows by blindly groping. One of them was already dead. Damn, this is a dark one. Um, Not dead, but as I cocked an eye, I noticed something like jelly on its neck. If only it would look at me, I thought, and place it like the rest in my palm. It rolled off and sprawled out flat on its back. I kept looking. Its eyes were covered with film. I knew it was dying, and then it jerked once to the right, once to the left. It stretched out like the leaf of a plane tree, its long beak still opening, closing. Its color was reddish, purple. It lay like a little nomadic knight, turning up my state, by, uh, turning up by mistake in Papua. Nothing could have happened to it but this. Damn. I hadn't read that one yet. That was awesome. That, belt. that was it was uh, horrifying. <laughs> so could, there we go. Yeah, we could just, you say the could you say the um author again and the name of that yeah, poem? Tandori. Okay. Born wow. in Budapest in nineteen thirty-eight, a novelist, playwright, translator, and graphic artist. Wow. In addition to being one of Hungary's most celebrated poets. Talking about the universe, I noticed that that poem mentioned flower pots. I just did too. That was trippy. Yeah. That's interesting. It was meant to be. I'm just saying. Good timing. I'm just saying. Um, so Mike, when when you you kind of talked about this a little, I guess, um, in terms of um you don't like to focus, I guess, maybe too much on trying to like construct the um the conditions for creativity but yeah. talk to us a little just a bit about your writing process. You mentioned maybe your phone if you're driving, will you dictate into that or do you carry a notebook around like what's your process for writing a poem so you know you know i i am a firm believer in making a time for it um you know for a year like when i was first like in college when i really knew i wanted to be a writer i would make time every day a thousand words at least every day because i was a huge ray bradbury freak and that was why he recommended he's like if you you have to put in the miles you have to put in that thing that that effort and that struggle through the crappy stuff that you're going to write so much of yeah. before you start getting to your own voice because you just got to keep working it and it really did work out for me because like you know i was 
it, it helped me to understand what it meant to be a writer. And um, at the moment, the way I do things most days is I start off um, because of the ADHD tendencies. For many years, I didn't believe in editing. I would I was a newspaper reporter and I barely edited anything. I would crank out these stories at deadline. And it was fine. Every, like, you know, everything came out fine for That's why it was so scary when I lost that ability for a few years, you know? Um, but in recent years with the more slowed down version of my creative approach, I believe in editing and going through the MFA was actually extremely helpful to see how talented some people were and how much work they were putting in to create these poems, to create these stories and how seriously they took it. You know, um, it was a beautiful thing for me to see because I'd always had my own practice, but it was kind of like me being um, like a like a schoolyard baseball player and all of a sudden going to like double A baseball and seeing just how badass people can be and just how much effort they have to do to get from level to level. Yeah. And that really pushed like later in life, like I went to school later in life, you know, um, to have that experience was along with all the stuff that I was doing with the mindfulness shit. Um, it was a very influential time. So now one of the ways I force myself to do edits is I have, I found my, you know how like you kind of find your instrument if you're a musician sometimes, like there's a guitar that works for you very well. Yeah. There's, I've always had typewriters and stuff, but I was out in Shelburne Falls during Moonlight Magic one time, you know, that event they have after Thanksgiving every Friday after Thanksgiving. <laughs> and I was in this antique shop and I found this typewriter, this Valentine, Olivetti Valentine, right? It's bright red. Michael yeah. is holding it up for us. It looks like it's almost like out of the 50s or something. Yeah, it's like 50s, 60s kind of thing. I can't yeah. remember if it's 50s or 60s. But it's, it's this Italian design typewriter. I like I really liked it when I saw it. I was like, I don't need any more typewriters in my life but i couldn't stop myself and i brought it home and it is my instrument it's um i type on it every day and i love typing on it and it's the first draft of everything almost everything i write is that isn't in like one of those car moments or like a random moment where i just have to grab paper it's written on that typewriter and so by writing it on that typewriter i have this paper draft that i then have to import into my computer and have to edit a bit. Because oh, I so, wanted to ask you about that. Yeah, I mean, because I noticed on your Instagram, lots of typewriters. And so you do then take that and put it into a computer. You'll see that's the same typewriter on everything. Yeah. yeah that's <laughs> what I do. Yep. I take that everywhere with me. It's a portable. This is this little, <laughs> yeah, like, carrying case. Yep. Uh. Um, little red carrying case. is Italian design. It's so badass. But it's just... You know, when I'm going down to do like a wood firing down on Cape Cod for a week, I'll bring it with me and I'll type. And um, I take it home to New Bedford when I go see family. It's just. Um, what do you love about the typewriter as a machine for writing on? Is there something specific you you love about it? Can you put your finger on it? <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, it's, yeah absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Bad joke. <laughs> I can. I do. Even yeah. though I type with one finger each, I don't have good type method. Yeah. Even though I took a class in high school. Um, yeah. But what is it about the machine that you love? Like, what is it? You know, I love to handwrite stuff. I like yeah. writing. But there's something about, you know, I'm unconnected. Like, if electricity goes out, no battery is going to die on this thing. The paper is there. That's a good point. Yeah. You know, it's like, and it's just, 
the ability to create a machine like that is beyond my typical mental functioning. You know what I mean? It's a different approach to creativity than I have for somebody to be able to create a machine like that. So anytime I see that stuff, it blows my mind. I love it. I love the different ways that people create. And it fascinates me how differently we understand the world. You know what I mean? So that's one thing of like, cause I could never put together something so intricate. You know, yeah. I can spin yeah. something on a wheel. I can go weird on, like I can run with words like pretty good again, now that it's working again. Um, now that I, my brain, I should say. <laughs> yeah, and are there even people around? Are there even people around now who could fix something like that if it what, broke? A typewriter. Yeah. So in Amherst, there's still a typewriter store. I don't want to say the fact that it hasn't really repaired them very well there, but I hear there's a really good one in um, right out in Arlington, Mass. I okay. think. And um, one of my friends does some good repair, like on the easy stuff, which is cool. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Like that brain that can understand like to who love going piece by piece, that spreadsheet kind of brain. Yeah. Um, go uh, step by step. Whereas I'm like, I don't really want, I just want to take a piece of clay and fling it on a fucking wheel. <laughs> I'm making a weird pot for a plant to live in. <laughs> yeah. I have a stupid question about the typewriter. Go for Please it. Please do. How is it? You have like a ribbon, like an ink ribbon. ribbon? Like got an ink ribbon. Ink. Got a replacement ribbon right here, about to uh, go into that. Uh, Sweet. Are those, the and they still make that kind of stuff. They do. You can okay. still find all that stuff. Um, it's harder, of course. You know, mm. it's like. Um, but I think, much like records, I think there's a niche out there where people appreciate mm-hmm. the um, the experience of it, and I think there is a value to it that you know, because looking at a screen is different than looking at a piece of paper. There's no illumination there's um you can take it with you and you know yeah. go yeah. you know you're not gonna have to worry about the being connected to others you know you're you're a you're an independent entity when you're walking around with your fucking typewriter <laughs> yeah that's awesome um do you perform your poetry anywhere you know that's what got me back into it back uh, a few years back with northampton poetry oh. um that's because like for years I'd just been doing like newspaper stuff and writing kind of practical stuff. And then that group was once again, much like my Moravian pottery experience, you know, some of my best friends are still from that Northampton poetry group, you know, because I think all of us really love the opportunity of being around and much like my MFA experience, being around people who really love that craft, who love something that, um, I don't know, can be kind of like, ooh, poems to other, you know, like <laughs> yeah. the outside world's like, oh, he's writing a fucking poem about a, <laughs> a flower again. I don't want another. So just the fact that there was this crew of people who really um, appreciated the fact that we were trying hard to express ourselves through these words and were supportive and wanted to see one another succeed at expressing ourselves as best possible. Um, Do you... Yeah. Do you experience oh, yeah. do you experience your own poems differently when you perform them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like um, especially now, now that I've because um, before you know, <laughs> I prided myself on being able to write a poem five minutes before I was going to do a reading and just cranking it out there, and some of my friends would just get pissed at me. They'd be like, "You're not taking this seriously. You're not 
respecting the craft you think you've got all this talent but you know but it's like a this um this thing you're not polishing you're just throwing it out there part of me says fuck you to that like if you can throw it out there and it comes off that spur of the moment then it's punk and it's cool and it's like really got that soul yeah part of me understands them now because i can understand going back and looking and polishing and speaking it many times like to hear that poem spoken in front of an audience is like you know it's in, I think it's important to see how it reacts with people. And it all depends on the audience. Like every audience is different. And, yeah. I, um, I totally agree with you that, I mean, for if, if that's part of your process, then that, that should be acceptable and it should be okay. Like stand up comics do that. I mean, they, yeah. they, um, before you see them perform like their specials where everybody's laughing and having a great time, they go out and they like they workshop the shit out of their material. Yeah. Like they, you, you know, a lot. Some of them, a lot of them start by writing down the jokes. Then they go out, perform it. Then they go back and do rewrites. And then like they do this whole like iterative process um, before you see like you know the final jokes. I'm not. I'm not saying. I'm not. You know. I'm obviously not trying to say poetry is a joke but i think it's like a similar no, process it's a similar craft yeah you know, it's that craft of trying to hit people's emotions in a whatever way you're trying to hit it and sometimes poetry is funny as hell yeah. and but it's like but it's like honing that joke it's like yeah. what's gonna really nail people like what were and it is like getting it down to the that's one of the things i really understood in the mfa is the importance of honing it down to the individual word and how that word sits in a phrase and how that phrase sits in an entire poem and how it rolls together. Um, and I think I've always had an intrinsic ability to let the words flow together, but to understand the craft at the level of certain people who really take it so seriously, whether it's in comedy or in poetry or in fiction or nonfiction, it's, I was humbled really quick. Um, and I think it was a good thing to get knocked on my ass like that. Yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm a big proponent of failure as being yeah. a, um, an important part of life and the creative process, right, Jen? Uh huh. <laughs> she's like, you're full of shit. She's like, <laughs> she's like, if you if you experience failure, you sit there for days and you're oh, I fucking misery. sulk like a bastard. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> Eventually, I'm like, but you're right. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, uh, Mike, before we go to our last uh, two questions, um, I just wanted to um, check in with you, see if there's anything else you wanted to make sure we talked about um, that we weren't able to hit upon. We talked a lot about a lot of stuff. So, yeah, I've just been enjoying the conversation. So, all day okay with me. Okay, oh. cool. Go ahead, Jen. Did you, oh, did you want to say something? No. Oh, okay. Did I you mean, say cool? I always want to say, I say Did you cool. say cool? I did. I said oh, okay. Sorry. I thought you were saying. Sorry. I thought you were saying like, oh, I have something. Wait, the big question. Yeah. No. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, so when you're not, um, when you're not throwing clay, I'm going to try to use the right terms. Um, when you're not writing poems, what do you like to do for fun? Like, what do you like to do to connect to Mike and just, you know, get some quality you time? I like to play the rock and rolls on the guitar. Um, but nice. I also, I'm a big roamer. I need to just, I like to wander everywhere and just see stuff. I was going to say shit. That's okay. <laughs> but I, I want to, you know, it's not shit. It's wonderful. Everything's wonderful in its own mm -hmm. weird 
shitty way. Yeah. Um, but I like to go see things. And that's what inspires a lot of what I do is just seeing stuff and being around, whether it's being around people or being just myself, just roaming around, seeing what this world is. And it's, and I, I'm sure I'm like, you know, I'm like a cat that's like an old cat that's found. It's like, it goes from room to room, the same damn rooms, but I try to find as many things mm-hmm. as possible. That's what I do. I, I, I look at things and, um, and I make the rock and rolls. Nice. Cool. What kind of, um, what kind of music do you like playing? I'll play ACDC and the Ramones all day long. Ooh, awesome. <laughs> try to play the Dick Dale. Nice. Do you play, do you play that on your guitar or do you just listen oh, yeah. to it or yeah. Yep. And listen, I like to listen yeah. to everything. That's you awesome. Know? ACDC is amazing. Like there's their songs like they're so simple, but they're so fucking powerful. Like I was um Oh, were you looking at playing with No, I I'm so I'm now at the phase in my own like musical journey where I'm trying to teach myself songs and like I'm discovering it's it's been an interesting process for me. Like I just kinda got wish you were here to a point where I think I can like play most of it and improvise the rest of it and like i could sit there and play it for like four minutes kind of and people would know what it (laughs) is right like now i'm like trying other songs and i guess like part of me was always been in awe of like people who played music and we talked about this before like i never it never occurred to me how much fucking work and repetition (laughs) and practice goes into being able to do all of that do you know what i mean yeah, I just never. <laughs> but it's been it's like flashing back to the conversation we had earlier. I know about writing with our with our daughter, but um. So what I was gonna say is, I was um driving with our daughter like last summer or something, and I think um for those about to rock was on or Dirty Deeds. I can't I can't remember one of those classic old ACDC songs, and they had been listening to it in this camp that they were going to, and she's like, now she's like. She's uh wait for it. She's like, there's a hell of a guitar solo coming what? up. Yeah, this is, when, this is when she was like 11. She's like, listen to that guitar. It's so dirty. What? Yes. Yeah, it was awesome. It's when Filthy. um, it's good. Yeah, uh, she uh, she was going to this um auto body thing at Pathfinder um in the Pathfinder Trade School in Palmer or something, and the the teacher there had just listened to ACDC all day. <laughs> And so she, I, can I find her? I need this teacher. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. I don't know who it was, um, but I just was like, oh, wow. Okay, so you love ACDC now. That's awesome. Anyways, that's cool. I lo- that Yeah, was- ACDC good. Malcolm Young is God. Yeah, I know. It's so sad. Um, Those riffs. Yep. Everything good. Amazing. Um, okay. Um, last question for you. Um, I have a feeling you might have an answer for this one. So um, what have you experienced that you can't explain? in your in your long interesting life um what's been a hard thing for you to put your finger on and explain it could be anything it could be supernatural it could be you know people being assholes i don't know i don't know there are those yeah i think for me the biggest thing i can't explain is the weird connections that crop up when they're either supposed to or when they can't the weird ties that show up for me when I need them, you know, like the MFA program that people just strolling through moments that stroll through. And I don't know why they happen, but they tend to show up at good time. I think that happens to a lot of us, you know, it's like, 
all of a sudden it's like you're trying so hard at one thing and you're trying to nail this thing and you're failing because you're trying so goddamn hard. And then all of a sudden the right thing is like, oh, that's why I was failing at that. That's why that was doomed from the beginning. And then all of a sudden like, okay, so I learned I need to, so I, that is something I try to make as much acceptance to in my life is trying not to try too hard when things aren't like strolling in my right direction, because that mystery of shit showing up at the right time is a weird thing. So that's one of the weirdest things. And I like it. It's weird. I try to understand it and I try to roll with it and I try to like let myself roll with it. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, Mike. I love that. Great answer. Thank you. (laughs) Um, yeah, the universe, it has a way. I always mm-hmm. say things are going to work out Oh, somehow. wait. No, no. Is that you? Stop, who's, strike is, that. Reverse. Is that you who always says yes. that? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, the universe kicks you in the face about 15 times, and all of a sudden, like, here, here's a nice thing. Yeah, I, yeah, I'm really good at taking credit for Jen's uh, words of wisdom. Um, <laughs> all right, Mike, um, thank you so much uh, yeah. for taking time out of your, your day to talk to us about um pottery about poetry about the creative process um mindfulness mindfulness i've learned so much and um i really appreciate uh, the opportunity to to talk with you about all of this stuff so thank you thanks a ton for making time to chat i really really appreciate it yeah great and um our listeners i want to say um i'm going to have a bunch of links to um mike's um uh, website and Instagram and there might be some other stuff we drop in there in the podcast show notes. Okay. So if you found your way to this podcast, um, you know, um, hopefully you can find your way to the show notes, click on those links, check out, um, Mike Medeiros's stuff. Um, check out, um, Poesia, um, pottery, um, the web the things. Yep. The website for that. Check out Mike's Instagram. He's got a lot of, um, <clears throat> really interesting and uh, beautiful stuff on there. Okay. Yep. So make sure you go check all of that stuff out, please. Um, if you're finding us, um, as a podcast for the first time, because you know, Mike and what have you, and you're interested, um, do us a favor, subscribe to the podcast. Um, you'll get our future episodes, uh, downloaded to you automatically. We'll have lots of interesting guests, um, coming up. Um, you know, just like Mike, we have lots of cool people in the queue, always more coming. Um, if you're one of those, uh, future potentially interesting people who want to talk to us, uh, go to our web. Yeah. Go to our website and fill out our contact form. Um, and, uh, we'll, we'll put you in touch with a way, uh, to schedule an appearance, uh, with us. Okay. So, but we're always looking for new and interesting people to talk to, right? That's right. What else do we want to say? Is there anything else? Uh, subscribe, share with a friend, yep. give us a review, <clears throat> share engage with, with our social media. Yep. Um, if you're new to us too, we have over 200 episodes, uh, so you can go back and there's a deep, deep catalog at this point. Lots of fun stuff to listen to. Okay. Um, I think that's it. I think we've reached the end. Right? Yes. Okay. All um, right. So- let's put this episode in the kiln. No, in the trash can, Mike, with... With the, the with hot the, sticks and fire. With the sticks. Let's the blast the shit out of it. Um, get it hot. We'll cook it. I'm not we'll, going to melt it. Not melting it, though. Yeah, that's right. <laughs>
Um, all right. All right. Enough <clears throat> pottery metaphors. All right, Mike. We like to we like to finally end just by all of us going around and just saying goodbye in whatever way way we like to say goodbye. So, um, Mike, I will give you the honor of going first. I tend to just say goodbye. <laughs> I love Excellent. it. Um, right. We we have this this fancy and obnoxious way of doing it, right, Jen? That's right. Bye now. All right, folks. You heard Jen say it. I'm going to say it too. Um, thanks for listening, and uh, bye now. This world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate. Those who have freedom will understand also its heavy responsibility. That all who are insensitive to the needs of others will learn charity. And that the sources, scourges of poverty, disease, and ignorance will be made disappear from the earth. And that in the goodness of time, all peoples will come to live together in a peace guaranteed by the binding force of mutual respect and love. I shall never cease to do what little I can to help the world advance along that road.